0: Um, today we 're going to be in exodus again surprise exodus chapter fourteen we 're going to be in Exodus chapter fourteen and we 're going to look at verses fifteen through thirty one Last week, we took our first look into the people of god uh, the people of God outside of Egypt and how um, God had just seemingly rescued them through the plagues and Now he hems the people of God up again. He he traps them. If you're just looking at this from sort of an outside perspective, the Lord traps the people of God. There's two countries that are uh, countries of conflict on either side, and then there's the Red Sea at their back. And then charging forward is the Egyptian army led by uh, the hard-hearted Pharaoh. It appeared. It appeared. Um, to the people of God, and it appears to us, if we haven't read the rest of the story, that Moses has made a major miscalculation in their plight for freedom. But we know from our sermon last week, and because we know the rest of the story, that the Israelites were on the, the right path. Even if the path was strange, it was the promised path filled with the power and the presence of God. Last week we saw the bind that the Israelites were in, but today we're going to see the rescue. We're going to see the rescue of God's people from this great bind. Would you turn with me, if you already haven't, to Exodus chapter 14. We're going to look at verses 15 through 31. The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know... That I am the Lord. Remember that question is being answered time and time again by the Lord. Pharaoh asked the question. I don't think he was ready for the answer, but he got it. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. When I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Then the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them. the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots and his horsemen. And in the morning watched the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Remember, that was the promise from our last section of reading. The Lord will fight for you. And again, the people, the Egyptian army has recognized that the Lord fights for his children. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into, uh, into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen and all of the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord, and in his servant Moses. Pray with me today. God, you are good. Lord, and your goodness comes out in so many ways, and today we examine how your goodness comes out in your divine power to rescue, to save, to love, to cherish, to to, uh, be God to your people. Lord, would you help us today to focus our minds and focus our hearts, not only on the message that is at hand, the message of you saving the Israelite people, but God, how this message relates to our own lives and our own hearts and our own minds today. Lord, would you teach us from your word? Would you help us to be changed as we leave this place today? We love you so much and we praise you. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. We come to one of the most iconic stories of the Bible, maybe in all of history. The story has been written about, it's been sung about, there have been movies, there have been plays. All made about this story of the Israelite people crossing the Red Sea—the story of God parting the Red Sea and rescuing His people. It is a fantastic story, so fantastic that it defies human logic. And as humans, uh, we have tri- as humans sort of do at times, we have tried to explain away the unexplainable. Like any story, you're inclined. To believe what you have faith to believe. Some people are more skeptical and some people sort of believe everything they hear. But something must be understood in this story and through really anything of the Bible that we take by faith. A story is no less believable because you choose to believe it or not. Do you understand what I'm saying? It doesn't make a story less real because you say it's not real. It doesn't make a story less believable because you say it's unbelievable. A story is more or less believable and reliable based on the believability and the reliability of the one telling the story, but also the capabilities of the main character in the story. Yes, stories might seem unbelievable to you. And you might say, there's no way that this literally happened. But it doesn't make the story false. It just makes you unwilling to accept the truth that is set before you. This story we know is believable because God is the main character of the story. And we know about God's reliability. We know about God's believability. We know what God has done. This story is believable because we know the author of the story. Yes, we think Moses wrote this on to Papyrus or whatever, but we know that God, through the Holy Spirit, was the author of this story. And so this story is reliable and it's believable because the main character is God, and the author of the story is the Holy Spirit of God, who has never let us down and never failed us. So I would charge to you as human beings who have trouble believing and taking God at his word or taking God at face value, that you believe this story as God has written it in his holy text, as a literal happening. We have no choice, I think, based on what we know to accept the reliability of this story. However, I'd like to look at a few objections just really quickly and sort of sort through them, I mean, this is going to be really brief. This is not going to be an in-depth study, but it'll give you some ideas to some of the objections. The word for Red Sea is Yom Suf, and one of the problems that arises that people have, have seen from this is that often that translates better Sea of Reed's. Yom Suf, Sea of Reeds. And so some people have said that this crossing actually didn't happen in the Red Sea because the Red Sea would not have had reeds in it. It it likely happened somewhere north in some northern marshland or some northern lake where there was likely much less water. The Red Sea had no reeds after all, and this is called the Sea of Reeds if you translate it this way the The answer to that, and and there 's no simple answer, we have to remember that a lot of these things we take on faith, but we don 't take them blindly either, because Yom Suf is used in the Bible as a name for the Red Sea on other occasions, so it's not this is not the only occasion where it'd be used for Red Sea but also the context of the passage leads us to believe that Moses here is not recording some passing th- wading through water he's not recording you know ankle deep shin deep water what are some key indicators what does context tell us context tells us that there was a wall to their left and to their right the wall the word wall in Hebrew language means fortification it's like the walls of a city. It's not like some neighborly fence. It's not a six-foot privacy fence. It's not a chain link fence. It's not something waist-high. It's not something, you know, just to mark property lines. It is something meant as a defense for the people. It is sort of um, a, a city wall is the translation of this word. So we know from context, and we know really um, how this word is, is used otherwise, that that's probably, sea of reeds is probably not the best um, interpretation of that word. If sea of reeds is to be used, what could also be the case is, and this may be, it may be stretching a little bit, but this is possibility, that the Red Sea has changed over time, just like any body of water that is flowing does. And at one point that the Red Sea was actually connected to some of these northern areas that had reeds, which might have explained why they would have said that in this instance. But still, I don't think that suffices. I don't think that suffices. There's another idea, and that is that this is sort of a high tide and low tide situation. It was recorded that Napoleon went through something like this, where he was able to walk through a part of a body of water um, in a certain time of day. And then by the time he got back to that same body of water, it was full and there was no walking. There was no getting through the same way he got through. So some people have tried to explain in a way as, well, maybe this was low tide and they walked through in a more shallow area anyway. And, And then by the time the Egyptians got to the Red Sea that... Um, the water was full and it just kind of, the tide came in really quickly and rapidly and it just uh, rushed over them. To which, again, I, I sort of scoff at that idea, but I do say this. Man, if that is the case, what about God's timing? How about God's timing? God's timing is perfect. To where the low tide would be there for the Israelites and then the Egyptians would walk through and just at that time the Lord would command the tide to come back in and destroy The Egyptians. What I think we need to do is this. I think we need to understand that no matter, not no matter, we believe it happened this way, and I think you should hold on to that. But no matter what you believe, you should hold on to a God-centered, God-powerful, lean heavily on the sovereign God than anything else in the story. So what I, think this, what I think actually happened here other than these ideas is I think that somewhere around the Gulf of Suez, Moses took his staff and he raised it up over the water like the Lord had commanded him. The water of the Red Sea, the deep waters of the Red Sea parted. An east wind had blown through and, and aided in that, and it dried up the land so that the Israelites had no trouble getting across the Red Sea. And then when Moses, like the Bible says, when Moses got across, the Lord said, lift up your staff again. And he raised his staff again. And the waters came crashing down on the Egyptians. There will always be skeptics. We must not work so hard to convince skeptics as to what they should believe as we should really work even harder If we're going to try to convince skeptics, we should work even harder to try to nail down our faith and what we believe. And if as a byproduct of that we're able to um, share the gospel and someone else believes, praise the Lord. But we should not be so consumed with nailing skeptics to the wall as with nailing down our faith and what we believe. It really is about our faith in God and that he is who he says he is. There's a story of a liberal theologian that spoke on the crossing of the Red Sea at a small-town African-American church. Now, I've heard the story said a few different ways. Somebody probably changed it for context or whatever. Um, So it's probably a preacher story. It may have never happened, but I like to assume that it happened. As he read the part about Israel crossing the Red Sea, he got some amens. And from the congregation, a lady said, Thank you, Lord, for protecting your people all the way through the depths of the Red Sea. The theologian paused and he addressed the woman and said, This is not actually how it happened. It's more likely that they crossed in about six inches of water in a low tide. Thinking he had sort of defeated that argument, handled it quickly, and moved on, the woman replied, Glory to God, only the Lord can drown the Egyptian army in six inches of water. (laughs) Friends, when God has proven himself over and over again, in small and large but nonetheless majestic ways, it doesn't take much for the Christian who lives by faith to take him at his word. To the point where when dissenting stories come about, when, they, when people try to destroy or try to harm the works and the plans and the, and the story of God, we can give glory to God and say that he is and for, forevermore will be true to his word and to his people. Faith is then trusting in the divine power and the divine work of God and trusting that he has the power and authority to continue doing what he's always done. I want to take the last part of our time today and look at some aspects of the crossing of the Red Sea and how the crossing of the Red Sea div- reveals the divine work of God. There's four of these today, or there's one of these with a few little subpoints. God in his divine power rescues his people. That's the overall sort of idea today. God in his divine power rescues his people. Of course, I think we should take the literal view of the parting of the Red Sea. I think that's the way we should all take it. But whatever view you take, knowing what we know about God, you must not take a view that attempts to diminish the power of God. Whatever view uh, it is that you take, if you want to take that a giant tornado rolled through and like split the Red Sea, if that's the view you want to take, I mean, whatever it takes to reason it in your head, if that's the view you're going to take, whatever it takes, we cannot take a view that diminishes the great and mighty acts of a divine God, a God who is like anything else in the, that the world has ever known. He has shown that there is none like him in heaven or on earth or under the earth. And he shows it to Moses. He shows it to his people. He shows it to the Egyptians. He showed it to past enemies. He shows it to future enemies. And he shows it to his people today. So whatever view you take of any of the amazing events of the Bible. If you take the literal view. Which I think in most of the times. The literal and specific way it's saying. It is the God ordained view that we should take. We should always lean very heavily On the acts of God being the divine working of the one true God. Today I want to look and see what the divine acts of God are from our story. And see how these works can only come from the one true God. The first divine act we see is that the Lord used Moses to accomplish his work. Look at verse 15. The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. One of the most overlooked aspects of the divine work of God is the fact that he gets glory by using regular, ordinary, often uninteresting people to do his will. And Moses was just that. Remember the background of Moses? Moses. He was a self-proclaimed, not good speaker. He was not one that was wanting to step up. Not good with words. Not wanting to step up. Often asking the Lord if he was still sure. and And yet the Lord uses him in a position where he would have to speak, he would have to step up, and he would have to be pretty sure about himself and the Lord. And we come to this place where Moses is being used by God, an ordinary and unimportant person becoming the protagonist of one of the most historic stories ever told. Have you ever thought about how that relates? Maybe not, because the truth of the matter is most of us are just like Moses. God purposes to use us, and we tell him over and over again we can't be used. We tell him we aren't confident, that we can't speak. We tell him all about our past and how that prevents us from doing his will. We tell him about all the walls and all the barriers that there are to being used. As opposed to trusting in the divine power and the divine will and the divine plan of God to use people that he purposes to use. One of the biggest divine works that might get overlooked in our story is the work of the Spirit of God to get the Moses who was afraid to pick up his staff after it turned into a snake to be the Moses who raised his staff in the might and the authority of God and parted the Red Sea. Friends, he went from the the scared, unsure the servant who was lacking power, to the guy who was commanding the Red Sea. This is one of the reasons that the story of Moses makes good theater. But why is Moses even necessary? Why do we need Noah? Why do we need Joseph or or David? Why do we need John the Baptist? Why do we need Paul? I want to say this, and I hope I say this properly, and this is life-changing if you haven't grasped it already, but if you have, you may need to hear it again. The sole purpose of Moses was so that others could understand what the divine work of God looks like in human terms. Do you understand that? For whatever reason, God allowed Moses to speak to him in a way that people were not typically allowed. And Moses used that divine gift as a means of helping people understand the plans and purposes of a divine God. Friends, can I tell you something? If you are a Christian, you are not saved just for your own salvation. But you have been saved as a messenger and a decoder of the divine works of God. Of God. You have been given the gift of the Holy Spirit as a means of communicating exactly the meaning and the purpose and the truth of the divine acts of God, that through His grace others might comprehend and come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Do you think Moses lifted up his staff and looked back at the people of Israel and he's like, Look, guys, look at what I'm doing! Yeah! All right, look, it's, it's, this is me, it's parting. No, Moses lifted up his staff, he parted the Red Sea, and then he went back to his people and he proclaimed the divine work of the Lord. Friends, it is a divine act of God that he uses normal people as a mouthpiece and a decoder of his divine works to the rest of the world. Moses didn't look back and say, hey guys, look at what I'm doing. I'm, I'm part, look, I'm parting the Red Sea. Does anyone, hey, is someone going to put this on YouTube? Can I, can I, look, look at me. No, Moses wasn't doing it for the attention. He wasn't doing it for his glory. But he was doing it so he could be a mouthpiece. So he could be a means of understanding. A God ordained by the divine power of God. Means of understanding for the people of who did not quite understand the Lord on the same level that Moses did. Moses' sole purpose as a messenger of God was to divide, to explain, to help people understand the phenomenon that God used in everyday life. And yet theologians today do their best to explain away every act of God instead of accepting it as his power and his plan and his will and trying to help people understand it. It's easier, friends, to explain away the divine nature of God than it is to be a messenger like Moses and help the people of God understand. Friends, God uses you in a divine way, not just when you're sharing the gospel, but when in your gospel proclamation we are helping the world navigate the divine and unexplainable acts of God. When we help people understand life goals and purposes in the spectrum, in the worldview of a risen Savior. When we don't just look at people and, and who, who wonder why we have so much peace, who wonder why we have so much stability, who wonder why we have so much understanding, we don't just look at them and say, well, I guess I've been lucky, or point them to other worldly attributes and worldly things that might have gotten us to that point that they would typically understand as getting us to that point. But we look at our life and people say, you have such a beautiful life, you have such a beautiful family, you have whatever, whatever, and you're like, it's only by the grace of God. It's only by the grace of God that I, that I stand here today. Friends, we have an opportunity, but we have an obligation to sort of be decoders of the divine acts of God for people. To be explainers of the divine acts of God to people. And not just people, not just people who celebrate what God has done to us internally. What God has done for us internally we just hold it in and never share it to the world. That would have been like Moses parting the Red Sea, being like, hold on, guys, getting across, and just shutting it back down before the Israelites could cross the Red Sea. But he didn't do that. He didn't say, look at me, you know, if in my comical sort of way. I mean, you're not going to think it's funny, but it's funny to me, so it's comical. I, I said... Moses is holding up the Red Sea, and he says, Now, this is, if you're waiting for a rescue, if you're waiting for the Lord, if you want to know what he's doing, this is it. Start walking. Start moving. Amen. There's a little side sermon here that I, that, I want, that I want you to hear, and it's important. You have to hear all of it. The little side sermon here is this. There is a point where prayer will fail you. You need to hear this. Now, I'm saying this to get your attention. I'm saying it in this manner to get your attention. There is a point where prayer will fail you. And here's where it is. The Lord said to Moses, Moses, stop crying to me and go. Stop crying to me and go. This may be a side sermon. It may could be a whole sermon. But the point where prayer fails you is this. Where the Lord has told you what to do. He's given you the answer. He's led you down the right path. And you still sit there and do nothing about it. Prayer will fail you if you're not ready to receive the answer of the Lord and move on. And it's not because the Lord has failed you in prayer. It's because you have failed to obey the Lord in heeding his answers to your prayers. In his divine power, God uses us as his mouthpiece and his means to interpret the plans and purposes for the world and for other believers. Second divine act of God is he hardened the hearts of the Egyptians. Look at verse 17. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. This has always been a difficult part to understand for many people. It seems unjust that God would harden Pharaoh's heart and the Egyptians' heart and then punish them after he hardened their heart. Often it seems like God punished them for doing something that he made them do. Well, it, that may seem like the case, but it, it's not that simple. See, Pharaoh, nor anyone else in this world, can live without the guilt of their sin. Everyone is guilty of the sin in our own life. And the Lord didn't so much prevent Pharaoh from doing what was right... He prevented him from doing something that was out of his depraved character. Therefore, hardening the heart means that he made sure Pharaoh that was on, he made sure Pharaoh was on his same sinful track that he was already headed down. Remember, the Bible also says that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. So, the hardening from God was more. Uh, it was just a more effective version of what Pharaoh had already done. It's sort of like calluses on the hand. The other this, this week we are, you know, we've sold or we've got a contract on our house, so we had an inspection on our house this week. And at one point, my dad was trying to help me out, and so he we had some, we thought we had some drainage issues, but it ended up being a leak in the roof because some water had gotten in the house. So my dad, while I was on vacation, uh, had one of my helpers. He paid one of my helpers to dig a trench the length of my house. Or, or the side of my the length of the side of my house, and so um, I have to sell this house with this huge trench on the side of my house, so that was an over explanation of my my illustration here but i this week i 've been digging that trench deeper and making a French drain and if you 've ever dug ditches, you know what 's the within probably if you don 't do it very often what 's the first thing that happens to you within about 30 minutes to an hour or so, you get blisters on your hands. You get, I mean, to the point where, now I know I'm old and it might be a little bit of arthritis, but, like, at the end of the day, my hands were like, like I could, they were like the shape of the shovel. So I ate dinner like that. But, um, but I didn't get as much blister as I did, you know, I just, I felt it. But I had conversations with two guys that helped me that day, or on, on two different days, And one was my helper, and one was Justin. And one of the things that was sure about Justin and myself is this, that I could have gone, because of the roughness of my hands, because it wasn't the first ditch I had done, I could have gone many, many hours longer digging a ditch. And this is not a detriment to Justin. This is just a point. I could have gone many, many hours on the same path digging that ditch, more than Justin could, or more than my other helper could. And all that would happen is, is that I would just build more calluses on top of calluses. But at the end of the day, Justin, were your hands just a little red? Probably. Are you answering just to answer? He didn't work hard enough if his hands weren't red. Um, At the end of the day, Justin heeded the warning of the shovel. And he didn't allow his hands to get calloused. He's like, "I'm I'm not a ditch digger. At the end of the day, if he wasn't hurt or sore, he at least thought, I'm not a ditch digger. The point that I'm trying to make is this. Hardening of the heart is just like those calluses. It's layers of layers of layers of doing the same thing over and over and over and over again. To where the shovel is no longer a warning to you that you are hurting yourself, but it's a part of life. To someone who is not calloused, who is not hardened, whose heart is soft, whose whose hands are soft, the shovel is a warning that if you keep doing what you're doing, you're going to hurt yourself. But to someone who is hardened, who is already calloused, more hardening only just makes it easier to make the shovel, to make sin a part of your everyday life. Pharaoh wasn't so much prevented by God from following him as he was just callous just a little bit more to just continue on the same path that he was on. When the Lord hardens his heart, he's basically giving, up, giving people up to the way they were living their life anyway. Now, we'll give you the implications of that in a minute, and they're major. It'll be in our last point. The Lord, this is our third, the Lord protected Israel all night. Then the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. The angel, the Lord protected Israel all night. It's another divine act of God in our story. The angel of the Lord and the cloud that was leading the people of God left their place in the front of the people of God and moved back and set themselves up between the enemies of God and the people of God. This is a theophany, by the way. We talked about this a little bit last week. We discussed how the pillars of cloud and the pillars of fire represent the Holy Spirit in a sense how the Holy Spirit as the cloud guides us into all truth and as the fire lights the way into discernment and understanding. But it's also more than that. The cloud is, a, is the pr- actual presence of God. And what I think is the cloud and the fire and all of these signs represent the triune God. As a matter of fact, oftentimes, and I believe this to be true in most cases, the angel of the Lord specifically the messenger of the Lord, is the incarnate Son of God. This is a theophany. This is God himself placing himself between the enemies of God and the people of God, protecting his people, a divine act of God. The angel and the cloud go from being in front, from leading, to stopping and protecting between the Israelites and the Egyptians, so that the people of God could not go to the enemy, and the enemy could not go to the people of God. There's a simple lesson that I want us to learn, and we won't stay on this very long. And the lesson from this protection, the lesson from the glory cloud, the lesson from the angel of the Lord moving to the back of the camp is this. The Lord may allow enemies into the rank of, The Lord may allow spies into the rank of God, into the camp of God, but He will not allow the enemies to destroy the camp of God. But also the Lord will not allow deserters. The Lord may allow spies into the local body of believers. He may allow false teachers and heretics and those who hate His church to come in to the body, to the communion of saints, and try to lead His people away. But He will not allow the church to, to be destroyed. The church cannot be destroyed from without or from within. We know that he protects us from the enemy and from his (coughs) attacks. But did you notice something else our scripture says? Something else pretty interesting. The cloud and the angel of the Lord were positioned in a way that neither of them could move to the other. Remember where the people of God are right now? The people of God are trapped with the Red Sea on their back. They're trapped with enemies on their right and the left and the Egyptian army on the front. Unable to find hope. Unable to find rescue. Now you don't think that the Israelites were ready, that there were some deserters ready to leave and go back and surrender to the Egyptians? You don't think that that was the case? So the angel of the Lord stood between the Egyptians and the Israelites so that he would not allow the egyptians to take over the israelites but he would not allow fear to take over the israelites so that they would leave the people of god the angel of the lord and the cloud were just <coughs> were just keeping true the promises that we know of god that those he saves he keeps those he saves he preserves friends we are protected from outside sources but we are all outside forces but we are also protected from ourselves the people of god had not gotten to that point they had not gotten to the red sea by their own power by their own works and by their own might but by the works of god and now that god had them there he was definitely not going to let them go back into slavery so the lesson is this God, what God saves, he keeps. What God saves, he preserves. What God saves, he protects. And these are all a part of the divine acts of a loving, true, ever-present, and powerful God. The last thing I want to say to you is this, and this is going to be where where we talk about the punishment on the Egyptians a little bit more like we did in point two. This is the last thing. The Lord brings justice and salvation to the praise of his glorious name. The last divine act of God in our story today is that the Lord brings justice and salvation to the praise of his glorious name. Two divine acts. I want to talk about them really quickly. The Lord is just. The Lord brings justice. And the Lord is just, which simply means that he must do what is right. It is all intertwined within his holy character. He must do what is right. Now, why is justice a divine act? Because ultimately the primary goal of God's justice is to judge sin and iniquity. Sin is lawlessness and iniquity. Sin is excuse me, sin and lawlessness and iniquity, and all it embodies is everything that is contrary to God's character. Therefore, it is offensive to him. Sin is a crime against God and warrants a stiff penalty. And that penalty is death and eternal separation from him. Therefore, now hear me, therefore, I'm not going to come with the good news yet. Therefore, it is to the praise and glory of God when he punishes sinners to the point of death, even eternal death. Now I know many of you have heard this before. And some of you may have not. So you have to hear me. Because it's going to sting a little bit. It is to the praise of God. When a sinner dies and gets the punishment he deserves. It is to the glory of God. Because what is happening is. When someone dies. And spends eternity separated with God. Under the wrath of God. He is getting the just Punishment for what we all deserve. You heard me say it before and I'll say it again. And it's harsh and it's hard, but it's right. God receives much as much glory in being just in sending the sinner to hell as he does in being just and allowing someone to be saved through the work of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> Because in condemning people for their sin, he is enacting justice. And God must do what is right. He must do what is in his character. Pharaoh and his, his people had their hearts hardened and a stiff condemnation. And God and his divine justice punished them. To this I would say, friends, All of us deserve this just wrath and punishment of God. All of us deserve this just wrath and punishment of God. The Bible says that there is none righteous, not one. There is none who seek after God. None righteous. The Bible says that we were dead in our trespasses and sin. The Bible says that our, the wages of our sin is death. We all deserve the wrath and punishment of God. And the only way for God to remain just is to punish sinners to hell or make a way to save His people. And of course, we know that he did. At the right time, and in the right place, and in in his divine will and plan, God sent his son as a means of saving sinners from the wrath that was upon them. God sent his son to take on the wrath and the judgment that you and I deserve. The reason that God can send sinners to hell and send some to heaven is because we deserve hell, and if we, and if we receive Jesus, we still don't deserve heaven, we still don't deserve eternity, but because God placed the wrath of God on his son, his wrath was satisfied. The Bible says he was the propitiation for our sins. The wrath of God was satisfied. And so God can remain just because his wrath had been taken care of. His wrath, the penalty for our sin, had been taken care of. So the other divine act that we see today is the salvation of the Lord. Look at verse 30 and we'll wrap it up. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant, Moses. The final divine act of our story today is the salvation of his people. God and his divine power made a way to not get rid of his wrath, But he poured out his wrath on the Egyptians and the wrath of God was satisfied. The Israelites crossed through and he saved them. In our story, he took the wrath out on the Egyptians, but we know that if we're to come to Christ, if we're to trust in him, that we have to trust that Jesus was the one that swallowed sin that swallowed that wrath for us on the cross at Calvary. Which is such a greater story that God commended his son for us, that even though we were sinners, Christ died for us. Scarcely will a man die for a righteous man, but for an unrighteous man, and God died for unworthy, unrighteous people. He died to save us. Friends, we can have that same salvation. We can have that same trust. The Bible prescribes a way to do that, and it's simply this. It's a word we use here often. It's it's repent. It means that if you're walking down the path of self, if you're like that Egyptian army hurtling towards the people of God to say, man, The Lord fights in this camp, and this is the camp I want to be in. It's a change of mindset, a change of heart from where you were going. It's repenting, and it's believing, it's trusting. It's not only trusting in stories like we see today, but it's trusting in something even greater than that. Trusting that, yes, I deserve the wrath of God, but yes, Jesus took on that wrath, and that is enough. And that is enough. That is sufficient. That's what trusting in the Lord means. It's sufficient for these people over here, and it's sufficient for me. It's sufficient to save me. And then you surrender your life and grow and live. You're formed by the Holy Spirit in the image of Jesus, to the likeness of Jesus. Not Not as Jesus, but like Jesus. In the sense that he is making you more and more holy every day. You can do this. You must repent and believe. You must surrender your life. One last bit of theology I want to point out. And I, I almost forgot. So I want to just say it. Look at verse 31. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord. And they believed in the Lord and his servant Moses. There's something you must understand. And it's been this case from the beginning. There is an order in salvation. And the order of salvation, oh, I thought that was falling. The order of salvation is this. God saves his people. God saves his people. They recognize that he has saved them. And then they believe, they repent, and they live by faith. Friends, you need to know this. If you are to receive this life-saving gift from God, it's not because you decide one day that you want to be more like God. Friends, we are the Egyptian army. And the only way, the only way we are saved is if God rescues us from ourselves, pulls us across the Red Sea of sin, and then, and then, We recognize his great work, his great might. We believe and we trust in him. There's an order to salvation. And it always starts with God coming down, condescending to us to bring us to him, to save us. Pray with me today. God, you are so good. You are so good to... to, even though we were sinners, to die for us. But not only that, Lord, to relentlessly pursue us, Lord, when we run from you, when we're in sin, when we are, Lord, living a life of a reprobate. You pursue us. You love us. Not based on any condition that we could bring to you, not based on anything we could do for you or give to you, but based on the sheer fact that you are just and you do what's right and that you love us and you save us. God, we love you. We can never repay you. So, Lord, we just give our lives to you as an offering. What else can we do, Lord? We love you. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.